I want to say thank you to Steve and to this church for extending an invitation for me to come and preach to you this morning. Um, I, I was talking to Steve last night, and I was telling him how exciting it is for me to see my friends, to see my peers doing what they're called to do. To, so to see him in this position, to see him pastoring this church, I know it's where God's called him to be, and I'm just so thankful that... I got to know him during his preparatory time, and now that we've, we've been able to see him sent here to do God's work, and I'm just so thankful for that opportunity. Um, he's right, I do love the Razorbacks. Uh, they, do not seem to, they do not seem to love me back very often, um, but that's okay, um, and I'm, I'm thankful to be here, and if there are some Arkansans here, you said that I'd love to, love to meet you and uh, say hi afterwards. So anyway, if you found Matthew chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 21. <clears throat> so this is, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one, of, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. I thank you for this text. I pray that you will make it clear to us this morning. God, I pray that you will open your word to our hearts and give us a, a willing posture and heart of forgiveness this morning, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Anytime you come to a parable, you should immediately give pause. Because this is a different type of literature than you are probably normally used to reading. Parables are difficult. They're notoriously some of the most difficult texts in the Bible to interpret. Often, one will um, find a, an interpretation in the text of the parable, so like the parable of the sower. He gives us step by step. This is what the, the seed sown on the, uh, the path, and this is the seed sown in the field, and he tells you what each of those steps mean. But some parables, like the one we've chosen this morning, do not have an interpretation that accompanies it. 
This means that often you will find as many interpretations as there are interpreters. There will be any number of ways that people will take parables and, and build bad theologies off of them. If you want a good example of this, see the parable of the wedding feast later in Matthew. No one agrees on anything in that parable. From every single detail, if you read one commentary, then you go to another commentary, they are probably going to disagree. It's a very difficult text. This one, not as much, thankfully. That's why I picked it and not the other one. Uh, <laughs> but you need to understand that parables are analogies. They're used to make specific comparisons and not to give holistic theologies. Our theologies are going to be incomplete if we don't understand what these parables are teaching us. But when we try to build an entire doctrine of salvation out of a text like the parable of the unforgiving servant, we end up affirming things that contradict other parts of scriptures. So we need to use caution. Parables without interpretations can lead to lots of different readings. So we must use the rule of faith. If you interpret a parable in a way that contradicts some other part of Scripture, that means you've interpreted the parable incorrectly. So that's one way that we can check ourselves when we come to a difficult text. You also need to understand that they are inherently allegorical. There are going to be different parts of the text that correspond to reality. But that does not mean that every detail of the parable will correspond to some detail in real life. Um, Klein Snodgrass says this well, parables are not equations. There is always an is and an is not to metaphors. Parables must be interpreted as analogies, analogies that show pieces of reality but may contain other elements for a variety of purposes. So, just for one example, um, the servants who see the unforgiving servant choking out his, uh, his fellow servant, and they run and tell. A lot of people have tried to do a lot with these, this group of people. Maybe that's the church. Maybe that's... All this. It probably doesn't mean anything. It's just a mechanism to tell the master. So, so we don't want to push on every single detail to try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. We want to get the point and, and use caution in building large conclusions out of these texts. But, the, but I think that this text does have a main... Uh, there, there are a few things that this parable is not about. So we'll start there. First, I don't think that this parable is about the atonement. I don't think that this text is meant to show us the mechanism of salvation. So what I mean by that is that it's, it's not just willy-nilly forgiveness. That's not how actual salvation works. That's not the point of the parable. It's also not about economics. It's not about actual debt forgiveness amongst fellow Christians. It's, if, if someone owes you money, that does not mean that you are required to just forgive them of that debt. We'll get to that later. But I think that there is a main point. And our parable today, it makes a specific point, and that is a true Christian life is marked by a posture of forgiveness because a true believer understands the enormous debt of sin that they have been forgiven. So I'll say that again. A true Christian life is marked by a posture of forgiveness because a true believer understands the enormous debt of sin which they have been forgiven. Another way to say this is forgive because you have been forgiven. So look with me at Matthew 18, 21 to 22. This, this part isn't technically a part of the parable yet. This is, 
is the situation that sets up the necessity for Jesus to use this parable. It comes on the heels of a passage dealing with sin among brothers in the church. It's the famous passage where if you have a, someone who sins against you, you go to them to rebuke them once. Then you bring with you a fellow one or two brothers to rebuke them again. If they are still unrepentant, you bring them before the church. And if they won't repent before the church, then you treat them like an unbeliever. It's often used in reference to church discipline passages. So it comes right on the heels of that. And Peter wants to know, so it's a logical question. He asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven times. Now, popular wisdom of the day, the rabbis often taught that you were to forgive someone three times. If they did the same sin three times, you were to forgive them each of those three times. But if they did that same sin the fourth time, they were to be treated as someone who is outside of the covenant. You are not required to forgive them that fourth time. So Peter is probably thinking that he is being really generous with saying as many as seven times. He's probably thinking, yeah, I'm going one step above all of my colleagues and saying, no, seven times. That's the number of wholeness. That, that surely is as many times as we are required to forgive our brothers. But Jesus had other ideas. And he replies, not seven, but 77 now, there is some debate on this number. Some of your Bibles may say seven times, 70 times. Um, we really don't know. I think it's 77 because the number matches Genesis 4.24, and the Hebrew of Genesis 4.24 is clearly saying 77. It's the same phrase in both places, but it could mean seven times, 70 times, or it could be just 77 times. Regardless, what the number actually is doesn't matter. The point is the same. Forgiveness is to be unlimited. It is not to be restricted by quantity or severity. The point is that there is no limit to the number of times we are willing to forgive our brothers. (coughs) Excuse me. So Jesus will then use the parable of the unforgiving servant to make a similar point and to give the foundation, give the reason why we are to continually, without reference to number, forgive our brothers. Our forgiveness of our fellow Christians has no limit in frequency or severity of offense because the forgiveness that we have received from our Heavenly Father knows no limit in frequency or severity. And praise God for that. If our, if our Heavenly Father only forgave us seven times when we sinned, very few people are going to populate the kingdom of God. We need continual forgiveness. And so we are to extend that same forgiveness that we have received to our fellow Christians, as we will see in the parable. So Matthew 18, 23 to 27. This is a kingdom parable. So if you see in verse 23, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is very common. Most of Matthew's parables are comparisons to the kingdom of heaven. So so what that should signal to you is when you hear someone who represents a king or the master, normally that means that that figure is going to be represented by God the Father. And I think that that holds true in this case. 
But a servant finds himself in an enormous debt. How much debt? Again, the number isn't, it's not that important, but for you to truly understand the comparison that's made later with the, unfor- with the servant who doesn't forgive the debt, it's important to have an idea of how much this 10,000 talents is. Now, I, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't speak talents, okay? That's not the, the denomination that I normally work with. But a talent is a weight. It's a weight of gold, silver, or copper between 60 and 90 pounds, so it's a, it's, that's one talent. So 10,000 talents is close to 204 metric tons of gold, silver, or copper. I don't even know what that looks like. I, 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 again, I don't even really speak in tons, but it's a lot. <laughs> one talent is equivalent to around 6,000 denarii. A denarii is one day's wage for a common laborer. So what you would get paid for one day's work in the field is a denarii. One talent is worth 6,000 of those, which means 10,000 talents is worth 60 million denarii, which means that it would take a common laborer paying every single penny he owes approximately 164,348 years to pay off this debt if he put every single penny that he owes towards the debt, which, if anyone here has any debt, knows that is not how it actually works because living still costs money when you owe other people. It's an enormous amount of debt. So I tried to do the math to see what it would be like in USD. So what would it be like in dollars? So the average U.S. salary in 2015, which was the last time the data was available, according to a quick Google search that I did, was around $56,516. So that was the average U.S. salary. And if you're thinking, man, that sounds pretty nice, I was thinking the same thing. Um, <laughs> that would make the debt approximately $9.3 billion that someone would owe. Now, if you were making $56,000 a year and you owe $9.3 billion, chances are you're not getting out of it anytime soon. (laughs) The debt is enormous. In fact, R.T. France points out that 10,000 is actually the largest numeral for which there is a Greek term. So the largest thing that they can say without combining other words is 10,000. And their largest denomination of money is a talent. So you've got the largest numeral with the largest denomination. It's basically like us saying he owes a zillion dollars. It is an enormous amount of debt. It is almost incomprehensible. It is meant to shock us. And it doesn't necessarily shock us because we're not familiar with, the, with all the denominations. But hopefully now, when you read that a common laborer, a servant, owed him 10,000 talents, you see the perilous position that this man is in. The parable is using economic language. And, and, and the, the monetary side of things is used as an analogy for something else. And I think that that is used to represent sin. This is common in this time period to use debt as sin. And it's even common in Matthew. First of all, the context of the passage, so in Matthew 18.15, it says, If your brother sins against you. Then again in 21, the passage we just read, 
How often will I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Then Jesus turns and uses this debt language, which I think should signal to us that he's not so much worried about money. He's using money as an example. Also, um, Matthew chapter 6 in verse 12 in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. Um, if, you're, if you're from Arkansas, chances are the only time you've heard the Lord's Prayer is at the end of a basketball game. Um, and it's normally said really breathlessly, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then you just kind of mumble through the next part. But the one part everyone always gets is, Forgive us of our debts or trespasses. So if you go to Luke... It's trespasses. If you go to Matthew, it's debts. That's because Matthew is using this as a metaphor for your sin. It, it, in some way, when we sin, we create a debt before God. And this is also true if you look at 6.14 to 15, immediately following the prayer, he says, For if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think that that clearly shows that what we're dealing with here is not mere money. We're talking about something that makes this much more terrifying. We're talking about a debt of sin that took two or three minutes for me to even explain how large this number is supposed to be. So if you can imagine how much sin it would take to, to build up a debt of 10,000 talents, that's the position that this man is in. The amount of sin is enormous. Think of the position that you find yourself in before God apart from Christ. You have, an, you have amassed an enormous debt of sin that you can never hope to pay. That's, that's where we're at. We've all sinned. And this debt deserves punishment. This debt is real, and this debt deserves punishment, as verse 25 shows. Uh, his, the, the master's initial reaction, hearing the debt, was to send him to jail. He ordered him to be sold, which means sold into some, some form of bond servitude and, and slavery, with his wife and kids in order to make payment. This would not even come close to the... A, a common bond servant was sold for about... Four to six hundred denarii. So it wouldn't even come close to covering the debt, but he was going to be in slavery for the rest of his life, along with his wife and every kid that he ever has. But he begs. He, he falls on his knees and he implores the master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, which, by the way, is a lie. He has no way to pay this debt, but he is begging. He is calling out for mercy. And, and, and there is no reason why the, the master should give it to him. He owes him an enormous amount of money. But behold the compassion of God. Verse 27, it says, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of that debt. Now that word pity, I, I was curious and I looked it up and it's the same word, it's the same feeling that Jesus has when he looks on the crowds and decides to feed the 5,000. It's, uh, it's the same feeling, it's compassion is another way to translate this, this word. Uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 19, Jesus will heal a blind man out of pity or compassion for him. Now it's interesting because we don't normally see pity as, as a good thing. 
Like, we don't want to be pitied. We want people to have compassion for us, but we don't want to be pitied. But it's the same word in the original language. And I think that that is kind of a beautiful picture. Because we are truly, without Christ, in a position to be pitied. We have amassed an enormous debt that, that, will, that will destroy us. But our God has compassion on us. And he looks at us with favor, even though we do not deserve it. So you may be wondering, what about Christ? How can sin, how can debt just be forgiven? Doesn't this debt have to be paid? And, and to that, uh, he, God seemingly forgives this servant from his mere compassion. But does this mean that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, does that mean that his sacrifice was superfluous? That it, that it was unnecessary, that it was just a, a martyrdom, an average death of a traitor. No. No, absolutely not. Remember, this is a parable. And not, it is not meant to describe a full atonement theology or even a complete doctrine of salvation. It is demonstrating our position before God and it is using that as a, as a ground for a command for us to forgive others. But it is not telling us that God, can, God will merely forgive our sins without payment of our debt. <clears throat> Excuse me. It gives us a ground for our forgiveness of others. Your forgiveness of your sin, if you are a Christian, your forgiveness was anything but arbitrary. It was anything but easy. It took the Son of God, Jesus Christ, becoming a man, living a perfect life, fulfilling the law perfectly that we could not, because that is why you owe the debt in the first place, because we could not live up to the perfect standard that God required. It took Christ becoming the God-man, living that life, and dying a sacrificial death on, our cost, uh, on the cross, paying for our sin. Your debt was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It was not merely written off. And church, it has to be that way. Because if it's not, then God is not, the, is not just in that he is not punishing sin, or he is not the justifier in that we are still in our sin and not saved. That's what Paul was doing with that phrase in Romans. He's saying that God is both just and the justifier because he paid our debt. He paid for our sin so that we can have new life with him. This servant, however, did not seem to understand the gravity of what had just happened when the master forgave him. In Matthew 18, 28-35, the next section, we see that this servant is, will forever be known as the unforgiving servant. The servant walks away forgiving, but now he finds himself in a position where the roles are reversed. One of his fellow servants owes him 100 denarii. Ironically, the servant uses almost the exact same words as the first servant to beg for mercy. Notice, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. The first servant said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. 
The only difference is that this guy's being more realistic in what he's actually going to pay. But he's using the same phrase to beg for mercy. Unfortunately, the same plea that just had the first servant forgiven an enormous debt falls on deaf ears. So I want you to consider a few things with me. First of all, 100 denarii is not an insignificant amount of money. Remember, a denarii is one day's labor. So that would be about three to four months of work. If we use the same $56,000 as the average salary, it would be like fifteen dollars to $18,000. If someone owed you fifteen dollars to $18,000, you'd probably want to choke them too. It's, it's significant, and it's real. And the servant was technically within his rights to put the man in jail. Because that man was owed. It was a real debt. And, and, and church, I want, you to, I want you to see that this is, this is similar to our own situation in the fact that the people closest to us can, can really hurt us. When someone sins against us, especially if it's someone that you're close to, those are the people that can hurt you the most. That hurt is real. That pain is real. That sin is real. And I never want to minimize or diminish the fact that when someone sins against us, it creates a real loss. But it pales in comparison to the debt that this man was just forgiven. Any sin against us, however real, however painful, when compared to our sin against God, both in quantity and in quality, will never compare. Our standards for our fellow humans is never perfection. God's standard for us is always perfection. So that means immediately that, that there is going to be an enormous difference in the amount and quality of sin, our sin against God and the amount of quality of sin against us. The unforgiving servant asserts his rights, and it's understandable. However, asserting your rights as someone who is sinned against is not the mark of a genuine Christian. Compassion is. Notice that there is a twofold motivation that arises in this passage for forgiving the sins that have been done against us. This First, there is a fear of punishment. This passage plainly teaches that those who are unwilling to forgive those who have sinned against them will be liable to judgment. Now that's serious. We're talking about judgment by God because we are, we are unwilling to forgive our fellow Brothers, another way of saying this might be using Matthew's own words from chapter 7. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Church, far be it from us for the, for the church to be an unforgiving place. Far be it from us to, to have the reputation of being a judgmental people. That, when that is true in a church, and I've seen it be true in churches before, when that is true, it, it shows that, they, that you really haven't understood your own sin. You haven't really understood the severity of the sin against God or your, your perilous position before Him. 
Some see this teaching in verse 34. Yes, um, and he put him in jail until he should pay all of his debts. Some people see this verse as teaching purgatory. So our Catholic friends will, will take this verse as saying, see, it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a waiting game in between actual judgment. So he is actually being merciful in giving this unforgiving servant 164,000 years or whatever it is to pay off his debt. So the, the image of a debtor's prison isn't forever. It's until your debt is paid. But I think that that's a problem. I think that this violates the same principles as those who want to build an entire atonement theology out of this text. I don't think that this, that this judgment is referring to purgatory. I think it is just he's, he's sticking with the metaphor to say that if you are unwilling to forgive, you will be liable to judgment. Does this passage teach that you can lose your salvation? So if you think about it, the servant is forgiving in the beginning of the text, and he is thrown in prison at the end of the text. Does that mean that you can be saved at one point and then still be, judgment, uh, be judged and thrown into hell? Again, no. I think that this question is out of bounds for the purpose of the parable. That is pushing on the details too much. What I think that this passage is teaching us is, the, is, is our motive and, and our, the fundamental ground for how we should treat our fellow brothers, not teaching about ultimate salvific fates. There is a second... <laughs> There is a second and more fundamental motive than the judgment motive used in this text. And that is the gratitude and imitation of God. Church, finally, we forgive because we have been forgiven. We imitate God in this way. So does this text teach works righteousness? Does this passage teach that forgiveness is a work that we can do to earn our salvation? Again, I say a hearty no. Our forgiveness is, first of all, it is prior. It, it is prior to our ability to forgive others. However, I do not want to, to strip this passage of its meaning. If you do not forgive your brothers, that does not mean... Forgiving your brothers is not a way to earn salvation, but not forgiving your brothers shows that you probably aren't saved in the first place. It shows that you don't have a true understanding of the gospel. It shows that you haven't understood that God has already forgiven you. He has already shown you mercy in your sin, so you should extend that same grace to your fellow believers. An unforgiving heart is an unrepentant heart, and that should terrify us. But no, we should, we should imitate our God because we are forgiven. And, and, and grace is transformative. If we, have if we have been grievously sinned against, our only ability to forgive comes from the recognition of the enormous debt that we have been forgiven of. That is why we, must need, we need to read and understand this parable. That is why I think this parable has been preserved for us. I'm sure that there are parables that Jesus told that we know nothing about. But this one is here, and that's because, as by nature, we are not forgiving. By nature, we would choke the guy and send him into prison. But 
That is not how we are to act with our fellow brothers. So, one more question. What about the victims of terrible crimes? Are they required to forgive their attackers? A recent example, a terrible example, is Larry Nasser and the United States women's gymnastics team. He used his position as a medical doctor, as the team doctor, to molest underage girls for their entire athletic careers. Are the women that were, that were grievously sinned against required by this passage to forgive Larry Nasser? That is a, that's a tough question. And it's an important question because if you, if you read it at face value, it almost seems like yes. However, I want to I give a nuanced answer to this. I want to say no. They are not required to forgive their attackers as it stands right now. I believe that the teaching is that they are not required to forgive them or forgive him because he is unrepentant of his sin. He is not a brother in Christ. All throughout this passage, in the, from verse 15 when it's talking about church discipline, all the way until verse 35, it uses the phrase brother. If your brother sins against you, if your brother sins against you. There's a relationship here that goes beyond mere acquaintance or mere victim and, vict- uh, and, and perpetrator. So I don't think that they are required right now. However, and this part will probably upset some, I think that there is a requirement that if the perpetrator of a terrible crime genuinely repents of his sin and genuinely begs for mercy from, his, from the victims, I believe that at that point, this passage teaches that they should extend that same forgiveness because if they are a Christian, they have been forgiven. It does not negate the penalty for his sin. If, if Larry Nasser were to genuinely repent, he should still serve out the rest of his days in prison. That does not change that. However, I think that this passage teaches that even in grievous sins, we should have a posture of ready and willing forgiveness for those who are in Christ. Because we have received the same posture and the same forgiveness from our Heavenly Father. This is not an easy task. Forgiving anyone of anything is difficult. If you've ever been sinned against in any way, if, even if you found out that someone was talking behind your back or, or was saying things that were unkind about you or any sort of, of personal grievance, you know that it is not an easy thing to let go let alone something as terrible as the crimes I just mentioned. But when we truly understand, when we truly understand the debt that we owed God and that He forgave us through the blood of His Son, it makes the easier, the smaller debts, the the interpersonal conflicts, much more possible to forgive. And it even gives possibility for those who repent to be forgiven of atrocious Atrocious crimes. Notice one last thing in verse 35. It says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think that last phrase, from your heart, speaks of a true and genuine, excuse me, a true and genuine forgiveness. This means, and this is a hard part, 
that when you have forgiven someone of something, you do not continually bring it back up to win later arguments. If you are married, this probably applies to you. <laughs> I'm not, so I'm clean. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But, but no, it, it is so easy for us to, to hold on to it. When we say we give lip service to forgiveness, but we genuinely haven't forgotten. And I don't mean that you're ever going to forget, because chances are if you've been sinned against, it will remain. But, but we, we must continually work to genuinely forgive, to not hold that against the person, to not let that color the rest of our relationship. That is a difficult thing to do. But church, if we practice this, if we practice this in this way, your marriages will be stronger. Your church is going to be stronger. When there are conflicts in this church, and there will be, there are going to be things that, that you disagree on, and people are going to say things that they shouldn't have said, and then hopefully they're going to repent of that sin, and you're going to remember it at a later date. If we can practice that type of forgiveness, then this church will, will exude the gospel to the outside world, then at that point, we will no longer be known as a judgmental people in the church. But because when people from the outside come here and they are unbelievers and they see how you interact, if, if, that, if, if you are marked by a posture of forgiveness, grace will exude in this church. Steve will probably do something that you did, don't like at some point during his tenure. He may be right, he may be wrong. But if you, if you speak out against him, if there is some sin that happens in there, repent of your sin and, he, and, and, and forgive. Forgive each other. And, and that, will make, that will make the future of this church so much stronger than if, if there is some harbored resentment. It will make, if you, are, if you will forgive your parents, if, if you will forgive your kids, if you will forgive your parents, all of your relationships, if it is marked by this type of grace... Then, then Christ will be on display in that relationship. Church, don't be like the unforgiving servant. Understand that we can only stand before God by grace and grace alone. And with that in mind, let's extend that same mercy to which we desperately cling to our fellow brothers and sisters. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. God, I thank you for this text. I pray that it that it lives in our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that, that my feeble attempt to, to expound the mysteries of your truth, God, sticks with the people here, that it sticks with me, that, that our lives and our relationships are marked by the same grace that you showed us in your Son. And Father, we thank you so much for forgiving us our debt. We did not deserve it, but you are a kind and generous God. In your name I pray, amen.